Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to 1956, episode 1.10. Last time we introduced Hungary, the scene for one of the most significant revolts of the Cold War. But before we get there, we have a few things to bring to you first. I am really enjoying our time here and giving this story the detail it deserves, so in line with this trend, today we're going to look at a, a little bit of a story about how Hungary endured the new system they were under, after we explained last time how this system was set up. Under the terrifying and terrified leadership of Matyash Rakoshi, the People's Hungary was set to emulate all other Soviet satellites, with some disastrous consequences for the lives, freedoms and incomes of the people that lived there. That being said, let's get into it, as I take you to the glorious workers' utopia of the People's Democratic Republic of Hungary. For most Hungarians, the working day began the same way. The collective reading of the darkly ironic official state organ, A Free People, was followed by the party official giving you the party line of the day. Such activities took place half an hour before the working day began, and any absences were noted. Most people simply read and played along, as Hungary's neighbours would do for the next two generations. All of this was conducted beneath the portrait of our wise leader, Matyash Rakoshi, whose sickly false smiling face only moved halfway across his thick, squat head. It was by party decree that Rakoshi had acquired the adjective wise. His personality cult had plainly grown unchecked, and all Hungarians were expected to play along in their semi-worship of this vain, sadistic, and frankly unwise little man. What was so clearly unwise about Rakoshi's position was the very nature of the contract which he and so many other meagre officials had with Stalin. At any moment, at any time, Rakoshi or his ilk could be carted away and never seen again, based on nothing more than something someone had said, or not said, or hinted at when their sigh at the wrong moment had indicated some kind of 
latent anti-democratic bias deep within their character. Rakoshi knew only too well that the contract with Stalin, which of course he guarded fiercely, could at any moment be terminated. After all, Rakoshi had seen two of the potential rivals of his had been thrown under the bus, and all this had been done with Stalin's tacit approval. It must have been exhausting to constantly have to check what one said or did at all times, to put up with the blatant contradictions which were daily on display, or to endure the dispiriting, immensely dispiriting demands of the regime, which always seemed to want more for less pay. Rakoshi would visit Stalin nine times between 1948 and 53, but it is not known what was talked about during his visits, or even how much Stalin actually saw him. Rakoshi liked to present himself as the only Hungarian that Stalin would talk with, but in truth, you might be unsurprised to know, Stalin couldn't stand him. He had an inbuilt grudge against Rakoshi for his Jewish heritage, which, yeah, Rakoshi couldn't help, but he also disliked the sycophantic Hungarian because of the lack of backbone he continued to display. Of course, this was also not necessarily Rakoshi's fault, because he was terribly afraid of what Stalin would do to him if he refrained from showing the most nauseating reverence at all times. So yes, Stalin resented the man for displaying traits that he inspired in him out of fear. Above all though, Stalin held grudges which dated back years. It was in 1947 that a Hungarian delegation, then consisting of the coalition that Rakoshi was soon to destroy, travelled to the White House to meet with President Truman. While all the other Hungarian statesmen looked somewhat uncomfortable at this visit to see President Truman, perhaps some could sense then that they wouldn't survive long upon their return, Rakoshi in these meetings at the White House in 1947 was a picture of amiability, and he talked at length, and it was photographed sharing a joke with the US President. Rakoshi's explanation, and the one which makes the most sense, was that Rakoshi was the man chosen to speak for the delegation, since among the other nine languages that he spoke fluently, Rakoshi had also mastered English. Rakoshi's multilingual skills wouldn't be denied, even by his rivals, yet when Stalin saw the picture of him and Truman laughing together, it was enough for him to exclaim that Rakoshi must be some kind of western spy. The notion was ridiculous, of course, but Rakoshi could have well known Hungarians had been executed for far less evidence since he had taken over. One such figure was Laszlo Reich, a former minister of the interior and a zealous Hungarian communist who had risen up the ranks in communist Hungary after 1948 to become one of the country's most important figures. Lazo Reich was cruel to a fault. He was ruthless, uncompromising, and endlessly ambitious in his quest to establish the socialist ideal in his homeland. But he was also handsome, disarmingly charming, and quick-witted in speech and manner. Of course, these latter qualities caused Rakoshi to become immensely jealous of him. Reich's career in communism had been far more glamorous than Rakoshi's because Reich had actually fought in the Spanish Civil War, and he returned home to lead Hungary's communist underground during the Second World War. He had built a name for himself in this way, while Rakoshi faced few perils safely in his Soviet exile. Reich and his wife were the equivalent of the communist glamour couple, and Laszlo Reich set to work with eagerness conducting the whims of the new Hungarian state. He oversaw the persecution of its Catholic hierarchy and ensured that its secret police, the Avu, remained well informed at all times. A few weeks before his own trial, 
Reich was replaced as interior minister and given the post of foreign minister instead. This was a strange omen and was in fact the first indication that Rakushi, having acquired Stalin's approval, was moving against him. On the 11th of May 1949, Laszlo Reich was arrested at his Budapest flat along with 13 conspirators. Laszlo Reich had no illusions about what awaited him. He had, after all, ensured that many men before him faced into the same abyss which he now did. Gratuitous torture beckoned until a bogus confession was wrested out of him, after which point he would present his guilt at a show trial. Reich's arrest, forced confession and execution by hanging was by no means a fleeting case. Instead, Reich's was the first step of the Great Terror implemented in the satellite states in Stalin's final years. The number of Hungarians affected by the terror remained staggering. Between 1950-53, in a country of less than 10 million, some 1.3 million were prosecuted and half of them were jailed. At least 50,000 were arrested, never to face trial. More than 2,000 were summarily executed, shot where they had stood. Many more rotted to death in police cells or one of the notorious concentration camps, which held more than 40,000 inmates in all. Some 13,000 citizens were forced to leave Budapest and work in dire conditions on many of the collectivised farms, on the surface because this was a time of imperialist incitement and a sharpening of the class struggle, as it was put then. In reality, the reason was to ensure that the large, luxurious houses would be available for the busy bureaucrats, who would become an elite class, a cut above the average citizen. Yet Stalin's terror consumed even those loyal children of the revolution. Of the 850,000 communists in the party in 1950, almost exactly half were imprisoned, exiled or dead within three years. By the time of his death, much as he had done in other satellites, Stalin had cut a swathe through Hungary's communists, destroying the assumptions on which the party had been based, and scaring the living daylights out of Matyash Rakoshi, who always feared that he could be next. The secret police in Hungary, the AVO, had been created to ensure that the party retained an iron grip on the populace, but it wasn't long before the AVO began to eat the very people that had established it. There were always excuses or reasons given for why certain figures had to be removed. In Stalin's break with Tito, rightist deviation or Titoist spy replaced the old favourite of Trotskyite, but there was no real rhyme or reason to the whole process. If you had left Hungary during the interwar years, you could have been a Western spy. If you fought for the communists during the Spanish Civil War, you were probably a Trotskyite. If you stayed in Hungary during Horthy's fascist reign, you were bound to be a Horthyite informer, as Horthy still lived in exile, and remained an immensely useful figure of blame. This passion for arresting anything that moved led to an explosion in the population of jails, and one inmate's account captures the insanity of the whole process. He remembered that in his jail were high church dignitaries, former Horthy generals, and Spanish Civil War generals. On the communist side, of course, the main war criminals or the followers of Laszlo Reich, a former president of the Republic, a galaxy of former ministers and undersecretaries of state. On the first morning when the convict orderlies came on their rounds, we discovered that our floor was served by a former cabinet minister and a former parachutist general. One of the gardeners was a count. The plumber in our wing was an old guard communist who had served 
as Undersecretary of State under Reich. We met great names of the Hungarian, Romanian, Czech, French and Belgian communist movements. In another wing, a Colonel Klatschix was the orderly. He had fought through the Spanish Civil War and then the Belgian resistance and there was even a street named after him in one of the Belgian towns. In 1948, the Belgian Communist Party wanted him to stay but Rakushi had insisted. He pointed out that the great hero was of Hungarian origin and as such should help in rebuilding the Hungarian army. He returned early in 1949 and was sentenced to life imprisonment as Lazo Reich's accomplice. Of course, it wasn't just the notables that were arrested. The AVO also expended much resources arresting random citizens, often on the whims or guesses of the secret police. All the while, of course, no mistakes could be admitted. We are drawn to the example of Giula Fazikas, a resident of the Hungarian town of Pech. Fazikas was minding his own business, doing his best to toe the official line, when he was arrested and rigorously beat and tortured by AVO agents for three full weeks. After such a terrible experience, during the course of one gruelling session, an AVU colonel entered the room and told Fasigas that unfortunately the AVU had erred and they had actually been looking for a different Gula Fasigas. Yet, since after three weeks of torture, Fasigas was in bits, the AVU colonel reasoned that it would be impossible to set him free. To avoid having to apportion blame for the mess-up, Fazekas was packed off to a labour camp for several years, his only crime being to possess the same name as the person that the Avu were actually after. Another example is also worth mentioning. Janos Cherry was arrested in a bar in a passed out state and woke up the next morning feeling very tender indeed. He was told by the stern Avo agent that he had been among friends the previous night and that his friends had sung the forbidden song, I am Miklos Horthy's soldier. Cherry's plea that he had been far too drunk to sing anything was actually acknowledged in the official report from the AVO, which noted that Janos Cherry was arrested in a pub together with his friends who were singing anti-democratic songs, although it was proven that, owing to the high degree of intoxication, Cherry did not participate in the singing, it can be presumed that had he been sober, he would have done so. On the basis of the above, I interned Cherry for six months for state security reasons. In actual fact, Janusz Cherry did not see the light of day for two whole years. The totally arbitrary nature of the justice meted out in the terror would have seemed darkly comic had it not been so terribly depressing and tragic for those caught up in it. It was impossible to discuss family members who had been caught up, since you never knew who was listening or who was an informer. One communist journalist recorded the difficulty even of sharing his innermost feelings with his wife. If I had admitted my fear to her and possibly been arrested, then she might have had doubts about me because I was afraid. In a socialist system, a person whose conscience is clear should have no reason for being afraid. So went the slogan at the time. To many, it was a question of survival above all. The novelist, Paul Ignotus, arrested and tortured by the regime, of course, later recalled that, In general, those who had survived the purges unharmed were probably more sycophantic and barbarous than those who were murdered, imprisoned, or at least pushed aside until Stalin's death. But some of the executed were chiefly sorry for not being among the executioners. 
the selection of criminals were based quite openly on assumptions about deviation rather than upon anything they had actually said or done. There it was. It didn't matter how guilty you were, because as soon as you were arrested, the Avo would torture a confession out of you. It was pointless to resist, unless you wanted to be tortured forever, so it was better to admit to whatever they wanted to hear, in the hope that you would only be imprisoned rather than executed. Little wonder that a grim joke in Hungary put it at the time that There are three classes in this country. Those who have been in jail, those who are in jail, and those who will be in jail. As exhausting as it must have been to consistently put a party-approved face on all the time, it must have been equally frustrating to see and hear, mostly through rumour, what that same party was doing to your country. In a primarily agricultural state, as Hungary had always been, the Soviet Union's model of enforcing industrialization, no matter the consequences, was bound to cause problems. Collectivization ruined the agricultural balance of the countryside, which had been under the control of the landed classes at one time, but the landed classes, of course, had had their houses taken and they'd been condemned as kulaks, such as had happened in the Soviet example. In all things, Rakashi was determined and even desperate to follow the Soviet example because he believed it was the best way to demonstrate his loyalty to Stalin. Stalin, indeed, would never have been humble enough to admit that his nation of coal and steel model was not applicable everywhere one went. It was largely because the system was failing that food shortages, longer work weeks and lower pay was gradually introduced from 1950, as Hungary tried its hand at some five-year plans of its own. A piece rate scheme, or getting paid for the number of items you crafted rather than the hours you worked, had once been condemned when the communists had been in coalition. When it became state policy though, the idea was lauded as a blessing for the workers since it granted all the opportunity to make money. Of course, you'll be unsurprised to learn, the scheme was a miserable failure. Each worker was set personal targets, a norm as it was called, which he or she had to make. If they went under their target, they were docked pay or privileges, yet if they made too much over their quota, they returned the next day to see the number reach even higher levels, and if they reached below that, yes, they were docked pay or privileges. Under the circumstances where workers rushed to meet their norms, quantity increased while quality nosedived. So much so that Moscow cancelled several manufacturing deals with Hungarian production centres. Everyone, everywhere, blamed the inefficiency on the workers and on imperialist influences, and the whole mad system was just allowed to continue. Of course, this Hungarian example was a microcosm in the grand scheme of the total Soviet bloc systems, and it provides just one example why this same bloc so lagged behind the West. Yet, there were countless other examples just like the Hungarian one, where ideology was allowed to ruin the economy on an unchecked scale. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. 
With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To some Hungarians brave enough to speak or think about it, it must have seemed that the Soviets were plundering and destroying Hungary for the sake of it. Surely they can't have actually believed that these methods were benefiting anyone. Indeed, the plundering of resources, the chronic hunger from food shortages, and the always underwhelming production records tell the story of a master pushing a slave he cared not one iota about, rather than a great socialist cooperative, wherein all were equal and all could take part. At first, Hungarian citizens didn't know quite what to make at the sight of members of the Communist Party, some of whom were high-profile actors like Laszlo Reich, getting arrested, admitting their crimes at a show trial and facing the consequences. After a while, though, the process became as familiar as any other. The only thing that was clear was that Rakushi always called the shots. No matter how big any figure was, no matter what position he held or what he had done for Rakushi in the past, Rakushi always liked to make it clear that he merely had to say the word and their lives were forfeit. Indeed, in January 1953, a man named Gabor Peter was arrested and put in shackles after Rakushi bellowed at him the accusation that he was a traitor and a spy. Just so you know, Gabor Peter had been the chief of the AVO, the secret police, and had believed himself untouchable as he swaggered around Budapest, visiting his mistresses, and expecting, perhaps, that Rakushi would never eliminate him after all he had learned. Yet, Peter's arrest and trial was another knee-jerk response on Rakushi's part to Stalin's escalating paranoia. The Soviet leader's latest idea, in early 1953, was one that all doctors were out to get him, especially Jewish doctors, or maybe just the Jews in general. Stalin never made it particularly clear. It was soon obvious, though, for the ethnic Jew, Matyash Rakoshi, and for his Jewish peers like Gabor Peter and others, that another purge was afoot. Rakoshi, as ever, acted to intercept Stalin's paranoid meanderings by arresting any Jews in high-profile positions which he knew of. Since he was hardly about to arrest himself, Rakoshi arrested Gabor Peter on the first step towards a systematic elimination of as many Jews in positions of power that he could find. And then on the 5th of March, 1953, when he was pretty much in the middle of this policy, Stalin died. It was on the 13th of June, 1953, that Rakoshi and his few remaining peers arrived in the Kremlin for a top-secret discussion. The room which the Hungarians entered into contained a table, and sat at it were the Soviet Union's first genuine experience of collective leadership in its history. 
Khrushchev, Molotov, Malenkov, Beria and Mikoyan were the main players, and now they called the Hungarians to Moscow without explaining why. Rakoshi soon found out in a typically Soviet fashion. He was here for a dressing down, and in front of his colleagues no less. Lavrenti Beria began the meeting's agenda by stating, Listen, comrade Rakoshi, we know that Hungary has had Habsburg emperors, Tartar khans, Polish princes, Turkish sultans and Austrian emperors, but as far as we know, she's never yet had a Jewish king, and yet that is what you are trying to become. You can be sure we will never allow it. Beria ridiculed Rakoshi for the actions of the AVO, which the Soviet Union's head of the fledgling KGB noted had gotten out of control. Whether it struck Rakoshi as absurd that Moscow's most infamous bureaucrat could accuse him of having an overactive secret police, Rakoshi did not dare say. Malenkov's criticism of Rakoshi wasn't much easier to handle, though. The heavily sweating Rakoshi had to hear about Malenkov's unfavourable observations about the state Hungary had deteriorated to under his leadership. In front of him, Malenkov had a thick file compiled by the Soviet ambassador to Hungary who, unsurprisingly, was not hugely fond of Rakoshi. The file said everything we've examined already in great detail, guys. Hungary's agriculture was dire, its economy was in the toilet, its jails were overflowing, its secret police was out of control, and Rakoshi's own cult of personality was lampooned as well. You have finally to understand that you cannot eternally govern with the support of Soviet bayonets, Malenkov concluded. The solution, dictated to this supposedly sovereign Hungarian government and its crumpled leader, was a collective leadership situation similar to that which supposedly endured in the Soviet Union, though not for long, as we know. Rakoshi had monopolised power for too long, and because his leadership style dominated so many posts in government, no new blood had been able to give fresh ideas or rejuvenate the country. From now on, the Soviet circle determined Rakoshi would relinquish the post of Prime Minister to his detested rival, the so-called land divider of yore, Imre Naj. Through this formula, it was explained, the natural, collective leadership state of affairs would bring Hungary back from the brink and bring some credibility back to Rakoshi's regime. They were not, contrary to his darkest fears, preparing to remove Rakoshi, but it was implied that this state of affairs could not continue. If he was not careful and if he did not try to embrace the new status quo, then not only would he fall out of favour with Moscow, but the Hungarian people, as it was eloquently put, We'll chase you away, Rakoshi, with pitchforks. Rakoshi could have made the wry point that in Hungary one was lucky to possess a pitchfork after all the agricultural destruction he had presided over, but he refrained from making any such point and he sat instead in a stunned silence. Stalin's death evidently meant the death of Rakoshi's iron grip on Hungary. So who was Imre Naj? This portly, almost remarkably unremarkable man, who one could easily have passed over for a school headmaster, hosted a Tom Selleck moustache which dominated his otherwise ordinary face. It was the most notable thing about him, to be honest, and one is struck by how unlikely a figure, how unlikely a portrait Imre Naj could, and how any of the accolades later heaped upon him could possibly have all fit. He was born to Calvinist peasants in 1896 on a village near the Serbian border and he left school at the age of 12 
Having shown no particular aptitude for any specific subject, he moved to Hungary's industrial slum town to gain an apprenticeship and, like so many of his era, it was the eruption of the First World War which really ignited his life. Taken prisoner on the Eastern Front, he was present in Russia during the revolution and then he became a communist. Released after Russia's peace, Nagy decided to fight for the Soviets in the Civil War and was by all accounts a brave soldier, on one occasion escaping from a POW camp to make his way back to the front. Courage, indeed, was perhaps Imre Nagy's outstanding quality and it made an appearance even under the most terrifying microscopes. During the 1930 Congress in Moscow, after spending years in and out of his homeland's jails, Imre Nagy represented the Hungarian Communist Party and made ways by arguing against the policy of collectivization. Why not let the peasants keep the land after taking it from landlords, Nagy said, since this would endear the peasants to the communists and guarantee a solid support base. This heresy shocked those in attendance who were already becoming aware of Stalin's propensity to demand unswerving obedience. For the next 15 years, Nagy lived an unremarkable life in a Moscow flat with his wife and young daughter, and she could barely speak Hungarian by the time the family returned in 1945. Notably for the time, Nagy's wife never shared his passion for communism, and quite unlike the norms of the era, he never sought to forcibly make her see otherwise. It was a principle he seemed to retain throughout his life, the idea that communism would speak for itself. Of course, his zeal for communism and its positive impact did not prevent him from aping the behaviour of his fellow Hungarian Muscovites upon the return in 1945. Nagy participated in the regime as willingly as any other, and with a critical distinguishing feature though. As a child of hard-scrabble peasants, he understood the importance of holding out hope for the people of Hungary that things would get better. This indeed had been his message when during the Second World War he had participated in the dissemination of communist propaganda back to Hungary. The Soviets, Nagy said, would deliver land to the peasants. So popular did his tone and message become that Nagy seemed the obvious choice for Minister of Agriculture in the coalition government. As we have seen, he gained a reputation as the land divider and was open about his desire to see land to be given to those that had so little of it. So open, in fact, that Nagy was replaced as agriculture minister and pushed into the interior portfolio. He barely lasted a year there before being dropped altogether from the government. Several times his peers attempted to bring him back, but even when Rakoshi's communists held absolute power after 1948, Imre Naj was never able to hide his opinions. He openly warned agricultural bosses that the collectivization scheme would lead to disaster, which must have been greeted with an even more intense silence than when he had said so nearly two decades before. It was not clear whether Naj realised that his life would be in immense danger unless he zealously towed the party line, but in many respects, Naj was unlike his stoic, unsmiling peers in the party. He told jokes, he smiled, and he talked with people, not while standing on an authoritative pedestal, and he even attended his daughter's wedding in a Calvinist church service, something which Rakoshi and his ilk held against him even after Nagy had acquired permission to do so. As he had been forced to do in 1930, Nagy issued a public apology, confessing his rightest deviation. If alarm bells were ringing for Nagy, then they should have been, since rightest deviation was one of Stalin's 
favourite flavours of bullshit, excuse me, to use against his former ideological allies. Somehow, Nodge was one of the lucky ones who survived, but his luck was not total. While Nodge tried to live a peaceful, quiet life as an academic in a Budapest university, he was called back in 1950 to implement the very policy he seemed to disagree with, crop collection. The man who believed in land for the peasants would now take that land in the name of the party. Understanding the hand he had been dealt, Imre Nagy solemnly did his duty, and this was noticed by the party and in Moscow, as he was granted permission to give the eulogy in Hungary's parliament following news of Stalin's death. My heart is heavy as I mount the speaker's platform to face our deeply mourning people, Naj began, adding, to express their deep love for our greatest friend and liberator and teacher, the Hungarian people are all rallying around the party, the government and our beloved comrade Rakoshi, and they are devoting all their energies towards carrying Stalin's great cause to triumph in our country. It was three months later that Naj was summoned to Moscow as part of the Hungarian delegation, instructed shortly thereafter to denounce the damage Stalin had done to his country and to abandon at all costs the logical conclusion to Stalin's great cause. Perhaps, at last, Imre Naj could now follow through on his promises to deliver what the peasants deserved. Yet the road continued to be bumpy, even without the Man of Steel breathing down their necks. Rakoshi, for one, now held a deep-seated hatred of his new Prime Minister Imre Naj, and he seemed to blame him more than any other individual for what the Soviets had done to him. Worse was to come for Rakoshi in 1956, when the very system and the personality cult as a concept would be publicly denounced, and people would at last be free, to a degree at least, to express how they actually felt about their wise leader. The fallout from the secret speech would cause Rakoshi to abandon his post and move back to Moscow in July 1956, but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves just yet. In the next episode, we will detail how this incredible year looked in Hungary and what the immediate reaction to the secret speech was. I hope you'll join me for that, my lovely history friends and patrons. But until then, my name is Zach and this has been 1956, episode 10. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. <laughs>